Hello, and welcome to the Church on the Hill podcast. If you enjoy this podcast, we invite you to join us live this Sunday at 500 Sands Drive in San Jose, California. Visit churchonthehill.com for service times and directions, and also to learn more about connecting, growing, and serving at Church on the Hill. Now let's join lead pastor Scott Simarok as he teaches at Church on the Hill. I was wondering who was going to make it today. Today's message is all about courage, all right? And all of our courageous people have made it here today. Just kidding, I'm all of you online, I'm super glad you're with us too. All right, so here we go. This is all about courage. Did you know this? That in the Civil War, young men were recruited to be drummers and they were mixed in right with the soldiers. For what purpose? I mean, whatever their drum beat played gave the signal to the soldiers. A certain drum beat would, would mean attack. And another drum beat would mean retreat. And another drum beat would, would play so that they would know if they did retreat or attack, that they would know where to rally. Well, in 1862, there was this thing called the Seven Day War, and the Union Army got completely overrun. And what happened was soldiers and drummers alike just ditched their gear and ran for their lives, except for this one guy. Willie Johnston is his name. He was a drummer and he refused to relinquish his drum. He carried that drum, ran for his life, and then began to drum to signal where the army should gather together again. Uh, he is the youngest Medal of Honor recipient at the age of 12. Not amazing. Not even a young man. He's just, he's a boy at that point. Now, the Medal of Honor is the highest award that military personnel uh, can achieve for extraordinary courage. And every year, this year on March 25th, marks the National Medal of Honor Day. And all of the recipients of the Medal of Honor, they're actually recorded on this wall. It's in a museum located on the USS Yorktown in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina. Uh, Inside that ship is this wall right here. And this wall has every name of every recipient of the Medal of Honor. It's 3,536 medals that have been given out. Today, there are still 63 living recipients. This museum memorializes, remembers, honors soldiers who had extraordinary courage. And that's what we're talking about today. Because we've been in David's story And if you turn to chapter 23 of 2 Samuel, here's what you're going to find. You're going to find the Medal of Honor recipients of men who fought with David. And I I want to tell you their story. So open up to 2 Samuel. While we have light, open up to 2 Samuel chapter 23. Verse 8 starts this list. And these people are called David's mighty warriors. And it reads this way. Josheb, Bath-Hebeth, a Tecumanite, was chief of the three. He raised his spear against 800 men whom he killed in one encounter. Next to him was Eleazar, son of Dodai, the Ahohite. As one of the three mighty warriors, he was with David when they taunted the Philistines, taunted the Philistines gathered at Paz-Damim for battle. Then the Israelites retreated. But Eleazar stood his ground and struck down the Philistines till his hand grew tired and froze to the sword. The Lord brought about a great victory that day. The troops returned to Eleazar, but only to strip the dead. Next to him was Shema, son of A.G. the Hararite. 
<coughs> excuse me, um, when the Philistines banded together at a place where there was a field full of lentils, this is their, their food supply, right? Israel's troops fled from them, but Shema took his stand in the middle of the field. He defended it and struck, down the Philist, struck the Philistines down, and the Lord brought about a great victory. Question, what did courage look like back in David's time? For David's mighty men, it was first this. They only got written about. They only got put on this Medal of Honor list if, number one, they faced impossible odds. Something was stacked against them. There's no way they should have been able to defeat the Philistines. They just, they had insurmountable odds. The second is this. They stood their ground when everyone else ran. It, that, that, you hear that phrase twice. The third is this, that they gave God credit for their great victories. And in the midst of this, there's one guy who gets more airtime in chapter 23 than anyone else. His name is Benaiah. Verse 20. Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, a valiant fighter from Kabzeel, performed great exploits. He struck down Moab's two mightiest warriors. He also went down into a pit on a snowy day and killed a lion. Listen, lions run up to 35 miles an hour. They can leap 30 feet in a single bound. They have five times the eyesight of a human being who has 20-20 vision. Benaiah stands outside this pit on a snowy day to climb down in and go after this lion. This lion maybe was attacking their livestock, maybe attacking their children. The lion gotta go. But that lion has claws. It doesn't matter to that lion whether it is snowy or icy, but for Benaiah, that could be a fatal condition. So what does he do? I mean, the reasonable thing is, to do what? Wait till it stops snowing, right? Let it dry out a little bit. That cat'll still be there, right? But he doesn't because of this. Benaiah's a lion chaser. Benaiah's courageous. I think our world has a problem today. I don't think we have enough lion chasers who do the ridiculous thing, the unreasonable thing, the risky thing, the unsafe thing. Because I think in our world today, our world has conditioned us to play it safe. But Benaiah is not even done. Verse 21. And he struck down a huge Egyptian, although the Egyptian had a spear in his hand. Benaiah went against him with a club. He snatched the spear from the Egyptian's hand, killed him with his own spear. Such were the exploits of Benaiah, son of Jehoiada. He too was as famous as the three mighty warriors. He was held in greater honor than any of the 30, but he was not included among the three. And David put him in charge was bodyguard. Two more thoughts about what courage looked like in their day. First, adversity is simply the context for a great story. Um, you know, no one writes stories about people who don't take risks. The reason that all of these men end up, there's 37 of them in this chapter, end up on this list is because they stepped out and they looked at a problem they, they looked at this adversity and they just realized adversity is nothing more than an opportunity for a great story. Question, do you look at life that way? I don't always look at life that way. There's moments where I'm like, no, that is risky and somewhat foolish. We should stand down. The other is this. David makes that guy the head of his bodyguards. Why? Because the fifth thing is, I think unbreakable bonds of friendship are formed in adversity. 
Come on, who are the people who you have a bond with? It's those that you've been through stuff with. Sometimes in sports, talk about the military, the bond that is formed when you face life and death situations together. Here's what I think is true about the church. I think everybody wants great relationships. But I think few people are actually willing to make the room to have shared experiences together. Because Sunday morning church is not a shared experience. Not really. I mean, how many people did you talk to on the way in? A couple? But there's no challenge in a lobby, right? It's a safe place. But when we share experiences together, I think that's where relationships are formed. And it's the kind of relationships that we all crave and we all desire. See, I'll put it this way. There's two kinds of regrets in life. And you'll know this instinctually, right? There's the regret for the mistakes you made. Meaning, you should have said no, but you actually said yes, right? The Bible has a word for that. It's actually called sin, right? (laughs) I should have said no, but I actually said yes, and I regret it. It's, it's, it's the, the regret of taking action. But there's also another kind of regret, and it's the regret of inaction. I coulda. I, I shoulda. I, I, I can tell you significant moments in my life where this happened. And the truth is, it was actually down at Panda, you know, the restaurant, Panda Express, on the corner of Monterey and Kurtner. Uh, some of our staff were out to lunch and there was this guy in front of us, about five people in front of us, and he was kind of dressed um, interestingly. Um, yeah. And he was ahead of us and we were, like four of us were kind of behind him in line. And there was a guy that was walking out near the door and he turns and he says, God condemns you. And he just went on this like 20 second rant about this guy and his lifestyle, okay? You can imagine what's being said in that moment. And this this guy, supposedly speaking for God in that moment, is just condemning this man and shaming him in front of everybody. So in my great courage, I went, what's happening? And the guy walked out. And the employees called the police. And I was like, ugh. I should have said something. And you know, for the next seven days, this is not a joke, for the next seven days, I played that scenario over and over and over in my mind. What I should have said was, well, you know, actually, uh, I talked to God this morning. And you know what? I'm pretty sure that for God so loved the world, that includes this guy right here. So he probably loves him. So you know what? If you don't speak for God, then who do you speak for? You deceiver? Get out of here. I mean, you know, afterwards, you come up with this great, courageous thing you should have said. So there's moments in life where like you sin because you said yes when you should have said no, but there's other moments in life that we regret because we should have said yes and we said no or we said nothing. You know what's interesting? Here's what researchers will tell you. What are the biggest regrets people have at the end of their life? Is it the sin moments that they just couldn't shake? Or is it when they didn't step out with courage? Researchers will tell you this. It's always this. It's people who wanted to have courage, knew they should have had courage, and they didn't. Um, I think sometimes we try to measure spiritual maturity in the church by how sinless we are. I said no to this and this and this and this and this. I'm going to walk you through the New Testament because I don't think that's how God measures spiritual maturity usually. Yes, it's part of it, 
But it's not about what we say no to. It's about what we say yes to in the moment. And we take a risk and we see opposition. And that adversity is nothing more than an opportunity for God to show up and show off in our lives. So let's talk about courage today. Um, And this is really, really important because we have to ask this. What does courage look like today? Um, Courage in the Old Testament. Let's walk through David's story there for a moment. Courage in the Old Testament involved a sword. And this is where this talk could go totally sideways, right? Because this whole chapter sounds like a men's ministry event. And then a bunch of men were like, yeah, David's mighty man, Benaiah, let's go chase some lions. Everybody in the back, we have swords for you. Take those home, mount them on your wall, go be men. See, that's not the Christian faith, that's machoism. And machoism is not the Christian faith. See, today, if I say have great courage, it does not involve a sword it might for our military, it might for our police, so to speak. But that's not, that's not the Christian faith that we're talking about. Because when you walk through the New Testament, I'll say it this way. Old Testament faith and sword were replaced by New Testament faith and gospel truth. That's what I want to walk you through this morning. See, we could, um, we could walk down this road and get all macho about how to be a warrior for Christ. But I'm going to talk about these areas of our lives where God wants us to be lion chasers. He wants us to take on an enemy. He wants us to have courage today. In Hebrews 11, Hebrews 11 is the New Testament version of the Medal of Honor list. And it starts out talking about those in the Old Testament. Let me just read this to you. It'll be on the screen behind me. Hebrews 11.32 They're talking about all the faith that these men had. And it said, and what more shall I say? I do not have time to talk, to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, about David, here it is, and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, administering justice and gained what was promised. So David and his men, they're applauded for their faith in the New Testament. But listen, you have to understand this. What was the mission of God's people in the Old Testament? Walk with God? and build the nation of Israel and protect the nation of Israel against outsiders. That was the mission. God's like, I'm going to form a people for myself. And through Abraham, we're going to form this people and we're going to form a mighty nation and all the world will be blessed through him. Now, when it switches from Hebrews chapter 11 to chapter 12, it reads this way. Therefore, so since we have all these Old Testament examples of people with faith, And he even goes into some New Testament examples of people of faith. He says, therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, we're going to do two things. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. There's the first regret, right? I don't want to regret my sin, so I'm going to stop sinning. I'm I'm going to throw off the sin that so easily entangles. But number two, let us run with perseverance the race that's marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Spiritual maturity is marked by this. Let's get untangled. Let's shake all that stuff off that's holding us down. The Bible calls it sin. Let's get rid of that. For what purpose though? So that we can run the life that Christ has called us to. The question then becomes this. What is the life that God has called us to? Here it is. Matthew chapter 28, verse 19. Therefore, go and make disciples. You were waiting for something more, right? (laughs) No, that's it. Here's what I want you to do. The the New Testament covenant that we live in with God 
Relationship with Jesus because of his death and resurrection on the cross, all of our sins are covered and paid for. And now he says this, you walk with me. And as you walk with me, I want you to help people who are far from God learn about Jesus, get to know him, commit their lives to him, and help them become spiritually mature. The context of this verse says this, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'll be with you always to the very end of the age. So here's my question. If courage doesn't really involve the sword in the New Testament, it involves faith plus the gospel truth, I want to get real specific about what courage looks like. Here it is, number one. It's courage to walk with God into new challenges. Before his death, Jesus made this statement. He says, if you remain in me, you remain in relationship with me. If you're in Christ, I live inside of you. And my words, okay, my truth remains in you. Ask whatever you wish and it'll be done for you. This is my father's glory that you, here it is again, you bear much fruit showing yourselves to be my disciples. Here's the first courageous thing it takes. Stay in relationship with Christ. Let him be the center of your world. And yet how many of us daily, we're just struggling to find five minutes, 10 minutes to read our our Bibles, to have a conversation with Jesus. And yet he's like, listen, remain in me. You got a lot of stuff that is prioritizing over me. There's some stuff that is consuming you. And let me just say this. You stay in me, remain in me, walk with me. You ask for what it is that you need. I'll provide it. The second thing is this. It's courage to stand firm in God's truth. Ephesians 6.13. I'm going to be all over the New Testament, by the way, this morning. Totally okay. Ephesians 6.13 says this. Therefore, put on the full armor of God. Oh, we get a little more military here so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. I want you to picture the warrior standing in a lentil field that all the Philistines are coming at them. And he's like, no, this is food for my family. This is food for my people. If I back down now, we could starve and not eat. And he's like, I'm standing my ground here. And he stood his ground by himself while everyone else fled. When you read this, I want you to stand your ground. Stand firm then with what? The belt of truth. Don't give way truth. The belt of truth buckled around your waist. Um, Here's what I think is remarkable today. Parents, if you have a high schooler, middle schooler or younger, pay attention to this. Uh, For me and my family, this is how how we did this. Um, Our kids started in Christian school. But then we put them into public school in middle school and high school because we wanted them to have exposure to being in a non-Christian environment with other students and under our roof so that we could coach them through that. And then when they went to college, we're like, listen, I will pay for your college, but you will be going to a Christian college because there's no way I'm paying to have your mind and your faith deconstructed by some non-Christian professor when I'm not in the room to go, I'm sorry, that's crap what you're about to say. That's not actually accurate, accurate history. And so that's just how we did it in our family. Sorry for the crassness of that. Um, means a lot to me. Um, my concern is our Christian colleges today. That they're not actually Christian. That you send your kid to what's called a Christian college, and yet the professor in the room is deconstructing their faith. They don't believe in the inerrancy and the reliability of God's word. 
Do they really believe, as Peter wrote, that the scriptures contain everything we need for the knowledge of Christ and to be able to follow him? And they start talking about, well, is the Bible really true? We, we really don't know this, that, or the other. Yes, we do. And all of a sudden, these Christian colleges are, are no longer Christian. So be aware. Ask great questions. You know what? It's interesting. Um, Christian colleges will come to me and say, hey, this is who we are. I want you to know, would you hand our material out to your students? You know what they're telling me now? There's a handful of them that come to me and say, listen, we're the only remaining Christian college in the Pacific Northwest that actually teaches the Bible and believes in the inerrancy and reliability of the scriptures. That's their selling point. Why? Because the other Christian colleges have walked away from that. Listen, you want to have courage? You're going to have moments in your life where people will say things that, oh, doesn't God say this? Doesn't the Bible say this? This is how I'm going to live my life. And you're going to be like, that is not true at all. You're going to be tempted to not learn the truth because like, oh, the Bible is hard to understand. Listen, there are some of you, you understand every little nuance of the Lord of the Rings. I've tried, people. I've tried to watch the movies. I can't figure it out. I'm like, man, those people are just getting chased all over the place. But you know the names and the places, and you're like, but the Bible's hard to understand. No, it's not. Maybe you just need the video version. I don't know. Courage to stand firm in God's truth. Third is this, courage to be an example. Um, there's this young guy. His name's Timothy, and Paul's training him up to be a pastor. And I want you to hear this. Paul writes in two letters known as 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. Thanks, thanks. And he writes this to him. In chapter 4 of 1 Timothy, he says, don't let anyone look down on you because you're young. All right? Hear me. Don't let anybody look down on you because you're young. But here's what you do. You set an example for believers. You be the example in four ways. In speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. That's five. Age doesn't define spiritual maturity. Listen, you could be 85 years old here today. You've been a Christian for 65 years of your life. It doesn't make you spiritually mature. It's not defined by age. I think it's actually defined by these two things we talked about earlier. Setting an example for people in the way that we talk, in the way that we act, in the purity of our lives. But I will also say this. I think it's also setting the example and being courageous and looking at adversity and opposition and going, this is nothing more than an opportunity. And can I, I'm going to say it like this. Um, you know, when I do this, I'm about to say something that um, is kind of fun, right? The older we get, the more protective we get. The older we get, the more we have to lose. But the younger you are, the less you have to lose. And so, you're, you know, you might find great faith in an 18-year-old who's like, I'm just going to live for Jesus. What do I got to lose? And yet somehow when we hit a certain age and we get older, we're like, we get protective. Like, well, I got a lot to lose financially. I got a lot to lose friend-wise. I got a lot to lose business-wise. What if I, I offend somebody at work? I get blackballed there. In conduct, in faith, and in purity. And honestly, it, it, guys, it's tough today, right? I, I don't have to tell you this. I mean, our entertainment, our TV, our, our movies, what sits on our phones, we have at our fingertips access to all kinds of violence. Stuff that if we actually watch that and Jesus was sitting there right next to us, we'd look at him and look at our movie or whatever and we'd be embarrassed, right? He's like, it will take courage to live differently than everybody else. 
The fourth thing is this, it takes courage to speak about Jesus. You remember Peter, right? The night Jesus went on trial and Peter denies Jesus three times, this girl comes out like, ain't you one of them? Like, you're one of those Jesus guys, right? He's like, no, I don't even know the man, right? Jesus dies on the cross, is resurrected, reinstates Peter as like the head of the church, like the, the, the main pastor, the head of the group. Peter and John go out and they, they're speaking to, about Jesus to people. The same people that had Jesus killed, these Jewish authorities call them in, have them beaten and jailed. And they tell them, whatever you do, don't speak about Jesus. Acts chapter four, verse 18 says, then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, love this, which is right in God's eyes to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. That's courage. You know, every now and then I get asked this question, pastor, we should do an evangelism course. I don't know why I say it like that, evangelism. <laughs> As if like there's this secret sauce, like I'm gonna tell you how to do evangelism and you're gonna go do it and convert people on a street corner. You know what's funny? I would say probably 90% of people, they don't need new information about how to do evangelism. It's not a technique. I mean, you know this, you build relationships with people. You build trust with people. We care for them. Not so that they'll hear our truth. We care for people because we care for people. But in the midst of that, you're earning the right to speak truth into their life. And then you talk about Jesus. You share your testimony, your story. Is that new information to anybody? Probably not. What we're lacking when it comes to evangelism is not the know-how. It's the courage to do it. It's the, am I going to practice this? By the way, you know how you get better at it? You don't learn something new. You actually practice it. Uh, you know the story in, um, I think it was Nashville, during the civil rights movement. Those that went into civil disobedience at the, the cafe, so they would sit at the lunch counter and like, no, 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 we just serve white people at this place. And this whole group of people, they got together and they're saying, we're going to sit at the counter and we're going to get served civil disobedience. Let's roll. You know what they did to prepare? They created the same counter in a different location. And they went in and they sat down and they had people there who would berate them, throw stuff at them, treat them badly. They practiced everything so that when they got to the day and someone stood in their face and opposed them, they had practiced their courage. You know what evangelism is? It's practicing our courage. Have you ever practiced? Practice telling your story? Practice like, hey, if someone has this question or has this opposition to the gospel, what would I say? If we're going to do an evangelism class at this church, it's going to be that. We're going to get together and we're going to practice stuff together. Because when you practice courage, it actually becomes real to us. And now you're ready for the situation. And also this, courage actually becomes contagious when we do it together. So I get excited about this. Five, I'm going to run out of time here. But this is super important. I think it's courage to raise a godly family. Here's what the scripture says. Fathers, and I would say mothers here for sure, do not exasperate your children. Don't drive them crazy, but instead bring them up in the training and the instruction of the Lord. Dads, um, I don't think it's a mistake that this is addressed to fathers. You could say parents too, but I will say this. Out of all the things we teach our kids, do we train them to follow Christ? 
It's so weird how a four-year-old can grow up to be a 14-year-old that we fear. Am I right? You're like, I have a four-year-old. They're not scary. Wait till you have a 14-year-old. Some of the parents are like, no, seriously, they're scary. You know what we're afraid of? We're afraid that they might not like us. That we're going to try and shape their life in a direction as God calls us to, and they might reject that. But listen, the love that a father has for his kids or a mother has for his kids, that love gives you the grounds to give instruction. Do not fear being their parent. You are not their friend. You're their parent. I have friends. My kids are not my friends. Now that they're adults, my kids like 22, 24, like they are my friends, which praise God, they both walk with Christ. Super excited about that. Someone asked me, what's been your greatest accomplishment as a pastor? My family, hands down. Because I I never want to pastor a church in such a way that my, my family isn't my first priority. But it takes courage to raise a godly family. I think it's also this, it's courage to receive corrections. Has anyone ever corrected you outside your parents? You got corrected at work and you felt the hackles on the back of your neck like, oh, you think I need to be corrected? Do you know that you? Um, It's interesting. Proverbs says this, do not rebuke mockers or they will hate you. Rebuke the wise and they will love you. Can I tell you the number one quality that you need to receive correction? It's humility takes a lot of courage to allow someone else to speak into your life. Listen, if you're going to make a big decision, would you actually open up your life? Hey, listen, I'm about to make this big investment. I'm about to spend money on this. And you gather a couple people who know you well, who are followers of Christ, gather them around you say, this is what I'm about to do. Would you give me wisdom? Who does that? I hope we do. Because do you know that our hearts and our minds, we're so deceptive. We want what we want because we want it, right? And we can justify it. But what if we gather people around us to say, hey, would you give me wisdom? Correct me if I'm wrong. Here's the seventh thing. We're almost done. It might be even harder. It's the courage to correct people in truth and love. Directly from the New Testament, Galatians chapter six, brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit, should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. I think this is one of the biggest issues in the church today. Think about this. Are you willing to step into someone else's world and go, hey, I see you saying this and I see you doing this. How does that jibe with the scriptures? How does God say yes to that when I think in the Bible that he says no to it? Guys, do you have guy friends that, what if you had to say to them, hey, I, I noticed, and I mean, you pull them aside, right? I, I noticed that when you speak to your wife, you get kind of harsh at times. Could you imagine his response? But listen, if that person's not a believer, then, then listen, their problem is not speaking harsh to their wife. Their problem is they just don't know Jesus. Jesus will fix that. But if they're a follower of Christ and they're not living a way that honors their wife, are you willing to have the courage to step in and say, I love you, but there is something not right here? 
Here's what I see happen sometimes. We courageously step in, but somehow in the midst of it, they look back at you and go, who do you think you are? And now we're the bad guy. Gently, gently, with love, but with truth. The church needs people to be courageous in this way. And this final thing, let me just say it this way. I think we need courage to fight for the poor, the marginalized, and the victimized. Jesus makes a really big statement. I would encourage you, Matthew 25, go read it sometime. It says, then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did it for me. We can approach people and try to save them, which is the mission of the church. But Jesus also calls us to a social gospel as well that helps with injustice. Listen, can I say this? We can't stand up for everybody. This church alone will not solve homelessness in San Jose. Not every poor, marginalized, victimized person can we help. But shouldn't we do for some what we wish we could do for everyone? Come on. So here's my question. How's your courage? I mean, I I just laid out a whole long list of ways that we can show courage. And it's not machoism. It's not picking up a sword. It's not picking a fight. But it's standing up for truth. It's raising a godly family. It's being willing to be corrected and you correcting others. I mean, we've just gone through that whole list. Let me just ask you to do this. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes for just a moment. And you ask God. God, how do you want me to show courage in my life? Because I believe this wholeheartedly that our world still needs heroes. People worthy of spiritual medals of honor. Our world still needs Christians with courage to keep us focused on Christ, shedding sin and saying yes to challenges and adversity. Nobody writes a story about someone who played it safe. The regrets regrets that people have at the end of their life are about the moments they didn't exercise courage, the moments they didn't take a risk, the moments they backed down instead of stood their ground. And how does God want you to do that? What is God inviting you to do that is going to require great courage? God, speak to us. It might be a conversation in our marriage with our parents, with our kids, It might be an invitation that we extend to our neighbor to come to church. Lord, it could be a confrontation where we with love and grace and truth want to wrap our arms around somebody who's wandering from you, God. Give us the courage we need to walk with you, God, and to be about your mission of making disciples. If you agree with that, everybody say amen.